When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It. Chapter 2. Let's get into it. This discussion will have many, many plot spoilers, but before I do that, I'm going to briefly give you an overview of what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to give you my personal review, critique, if you will, of the film. Not that it matters. We're going to talk about the symbolism behind the movie. We're going to talk about that ritual of Chud. And all of this, of course, loops together into what is a Luciferian tale. Not necessarily promoting it, but basically showing us, demonstrating, and depicting the Luciferian forces of evil coming to Earth. That's what it's all about. We're going to talk about Corona Zone, Aleister Crowley, John D. Enochian language. Are you intrigued yet? That old. We're going to fill up that old smoke hole. <laughs> You're going to know what I'm talking about. And, uh, well, there's going to be a very controversial subject right at the end, and I don't want to spoil that for you. So, if you haven't seen It Chapter 2, I highly recommend it, because I enjoyed the film, and I love this tale. I love the book. I love the 90s TV series. I like Chapter 1, and I like Chapter 2. So, there you go. If you haven't watched it, go watch it and come back and listen. But if you already li- if you already watched the movie or you don't care, you don't want to see it, then let's get on with it. For 27 years, I dreamt of you. I craved you. I missed you. We need to finish it. From the inside, until we don't have a choice anymore. You lied, my review that you don't care about it was a great movie because as you know i stand against movies over 90 minutes if it's over 90 minutes you better have a real good reason why and this movie comes in at three damn hours i mean it's just under to like two hours 45 minutes so that's a lot to live up to but they did it i did not get bored or disinterested at any point usually in these movies that are that long about two two and a half hours i'm rolling my eyes and rootsing around in my seat you like that word rootsing that's a pa dutch term i was rootsing around usually 
but not in this movie. It was great. Fantastic movie. Uh, but don't listen to me. I also think Spring Breakers is a great movie. <laughs> and uh, upon review of a couple other reviews of the movie, I didn't realize Richie was gay. Richie, played by Bill Hader. Fantastic performance, by the way. Very funny. A lot better than the 90s movie uh, TV series of It, where the adult version of Richie is played by that guy on Night Court. Because, I mean, he was just corny as corny could be. He was coming at you with that morning zoo DJ joke stuff, and it's just it doesn't translate well. Uh, I mean, but say, hey, you know, some people, some people like that morning DJ joke stuff. Look at uh, last podcast on the left. People love that show. <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the movie was good. I'm stupid. I didn't even see it. Richie was gay because it wasn't a major part of the plot, but apparently he was. And, and, and look, I'm not a great movie critic either. Okay. I definitely, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that overthinks the movies or looks for the inconsistencies in logic. Like, I'm just, I'm just not that guy. I'm, I'm fairly easy to please. Um, and, and also I am a huge it fan. Uh, like I've told you before, I had a show about it chapter one last year. The, um, the book that I read when I was like 12 or so. It really struck a nerve with me. It really... Stephen King was in contact with some kind of dark forces when he wrote this book. I wish I had some interviews to back that up. I don't. I kind of casually looked here and there and couldn't find anything. But there's something very palpable about his depiction of evil. And it scares the hell out of me. And he also does a really good job at conveying what it's like to be a child and, you know, confronting your demons as an adult and all that stuff. He's just a great storyteller, period. So I'm in love with the film, all the iterations of it. Uh, I'm easy to please. I'm a simpleton as far as that goes. But hey. And also, I just had seen Scary Movies to Tell in the Dark, which was absolute crap. Absolute rubbish. (laughs) It was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. And if you look at, like, Rotten Tomatoes, which is fake news if you ask me you look at all these critiques and reviews of movies they're putting scary movies to tell in the dark actually ranks higher than it chapter two which is appalling to me because scary movies was such a crap i couldn't want my money back more now i've seen and and you know you if you follow any of these reviews or critiques of it chapter two it it kind of bothers me because everyone's so quick to judge every little thing about the movie but like what do what do people want exactly do you want another you want another superhero movie a predictable superhero movie yeah i guess so avengers 25 fast and furious 64 that's what that's what people want apparently so that's i'm gonna get off my soapbox uh but the the movie did a good job of referencing a lot of the book stuff without making it a 10 hour long movie like, people want to complain about the inconsistencies and the logic problems, but, like, how long of a movie do you want to sit through exactly, okay? Like, uh, there's a part with the black goo getting vomited out of the leper, the uh, Eddie not faring so well in the end, and uh, the relationship between Richie and Eddie, which 
apparently has some homo things about it. I, I didn't really catch that on the first viewing. I'm going to have to rewatch it. And the smoke hole ceremony, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And uh, Oh, and one more thing I want to tell you about here. Uh, I almost changed my entire outlook on watching trailers for movies that I want to see. Because if you watch the trailer, maybe it was a teaser. Maybe that's a more appropriate term. But Beverly, as an adult, goes back to her childhood home to grab her token, which comes up in the ritual of Chud, which we'll talk about. And for her, her token was the postcard that Ben writes her about the January embers. That whole scene in the film was fantastic. I mean, it might have been one of the greatest uh, scenes in the whole film. But like, it kind of got ruined because I already knew what was going to happen. It was very terrifying. I mean, but it was still good. Uh, it was still good, even though I knew what was going to happen. So, you know, kudos for that. Now, what was my favorite scene on here? I would say, I kind of wrote little notes. You know how I do. Uh, Richie, as an adult, gets <laughs> he goes to the town square and the Paul Bunyan statue comes after him. And that whole scene was just incredible. I mean, the whole town, like, it's so creepy. The town's like swaying and staring at him. It was just super creepy. Now, the ending, the ending was good, not great. I'd prefer a darker ending because in the book and in the 90s TV series, they portray it in its final version, its unfiltered version as the spider. And I liked how they ditched the clown in that 90s version of it. Because to me, clowns aren't really scary. But in the film, in chapter two, they turned it into the spider with the head of Pennywise, which I don't know, wasn't that good to me. It wasn't my favorite thing. Now, let's get into the story. You're, you, didn't, you didn't come here to listen to my half-assed review of the movie. Let's talk about the symbolism. First off, Notice that Pennywise comes back, or it, I should say, it comes back every 27 years. That reminds me of the 27 Club. Of course, the 27 Club, famous, famous for killing celebrities at a certain age. Musicians like, of course, Robert Johnson, the blues man who sold his soul at the crossroads, which Netflix has a little show about now even. He quite literally sold his soul to the devil, and the devil took it back at 27 years old. And Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, big Crowley fan, him and uh, Robert Plant allegedly went to the crossroads in Mississippi where it actually went down and took some dirt for themselves. Jim Morrison died in the bathtub, which, of course, that's some symbolism too, crossing over in the bathtub, which is what happens to Stan in the movie It. And, you know, you got, like, Janis Joplin and so on. But you already know about the 27 Club. Kurt Cobain. Can't forget about him. Who was recently sort of in the news because apparently Courtney Love was offered some money to appear at a party for the the Sacklers. The family that was behind the opioid crisis. The elitists. Killing off all the Americans. Because that's what this is all about. These elitists truly believe... They are superior to all of us. 
we're going to get into that. The the turtle. Let's talk about the turtle. Now, in the film, in the first chapter, you see a turtle a few times throughout the film. Clearly put there on purpose. As a reference to the book. And in chapter two, you also see it. It's actually in the classroom when Ben, I believe it is, goes back and is a as an adult to revisit his high school. But Matterin is the name of the turtle. And this turtle exists in the macroverse. And the turtle created the actual universe after it had vomited it out. Makes sense. (laughs) So this is from the book, right? This from Stephen King's warped mind that there was like a God character and that God created this turtle Matterin. And Matterin exists in this thing called the macroverse. And Matterin actually created our universe. Now, in the book, we identify Matterin the turtle as the brother to it. It being the adversary. In the book... During the ritual of Chud, we see the final battle with the spider version of it in the 1950s. Because if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the story, it's these kids who grow up in the 50s and they fight it, but they don't quite kill it. So they have to come back 27 years later in the 80s to fight it and kill it finally. And they do the ritual of Chud during both of these things, which they talk about in chapter two but in the book you hear that it is actually eternal energy manifested from matterin so bill is in the mid this ritual of chud when he sees what he calls the final other that was the creator of the turtle that's like the god of the stephen king you know vision of the world of the macroverse so the final other God and Matterin, the turtle, were just standing by and watching as it devoured all these things. And I'm pull, I'm going to pull out some quotes from the book. What I what I wanted to do for you is I wanted to read the whole book before this film came out, but I didn't quite make it. I was maybe 400 pages in, and. Uh, didn't quite make the cut because it's like 1200 pages. Uh, so I don't remember a lot from reading it as a child, but I did go towards the end. Cause I remember there was different things happening in the book. So I went to the end of the book and I pulled some quotes out for you that I'm going to read from because I think it's very important as part of the tale here. All right, here we go. Suddenly, He thought he understood. It meant to thrust him through some wall at the end of the universe and into some other place, what that old turtle called the macroverse, where it really lived, where it existed as a titanic glowing core, which might be no more than the smallest moat in the other's mind. He would see it naked, a thing of unshaped, destroying light, and there he would either be mercifully annihilated or live forever, insane and yet conscious inside its homicidal, endless, formless, hungry being. Now, when you read that, you could easily connect this to Mr. Aleister Crowley, because this sounds a lot like the Abyss and Corona Zone. 
What is that? Well, it's a place where these initiates of the occult can approach this dweller in the abyss to gain enlightenment and allow their ego to be destroyed, or they go insane. We talked about this with Rihanna. I had a, she had released a bunch of videos called the Anti-Diaries, A-N-T-I, as in the Antichrist, of course. And that's what she does in the videos. She approaches the abyss. She approaches Coronzone, the guardian, the dweller. It's also a concept I talked about in the Dark Path. Did you pick up the Dark Path yet? You can do it right now. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. I narrated it myself. Years of research. You can also get it by joining Patreon, patreon.com backslash Illuminati Watcher. You'll get uh, no more commercials for the podcast ever again. Early access and, of course, uh, e-book version of The Dark Path. Now, in The Dark Path, I reference Aleister Crowley's book called Confessions. And here's where I will read to you from that. The name of the dweller in the abyss is Coronzone, but he is not really an individual. The abyss is empty of being. It is filled with all possible forms, each equally inane, each, therefore, evil in the only true sense of the word. That is, meaningless but malignant insofar as it craves to become real. Doesn't that sound like uh, Pennywise, you know? Shape-shifting, becoming real. These forms swirl senselessly into haphazard heaps like dust devils. Dust devils. And each such chance aggregation asserts itself to be an individual and shrieks, I am I, through aware, though aware all the time that its elements have no true bond so that the slightest disturbance dissipates the delusion, just as a horseman meeting a dust devil brings in showers of sand to the earth. Now, Corona Zone is a very interesting topic for the occultist. It also appears in Hammer House of Horror episode 10, titled Guardians of the Abyss. About a scrying mirror. Coronzon? Who the hell's Coronzon? According to the book, Coronzon is the guardian of the abyss. The devil's doorkeeper. Sort of, yeah. John Dee was after big game, no witches or broomsticks for him. And what did he use the glass for? Well, Dee employed an Irish medium called, would you believe, Kelly? Now, Kelly would go into a trance, look into the scrying glass, and he'd tell Dee what he saw there. Well, what did he see? It's very odd. He saw writing. Writing? Yes, writing in some strange kind of language called uh, Enochian. You could also read about Coronzone in the uh, Thelemopedia webpage, website, which is, of course, dedicated to Aleister Crowley's religion, Thelema. Says here, Coronzone first appeared in the Enochian writings of John Dee in the 16th century, where he was synonymous with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Again, it always is tied into the Luciferian energies. People want to, uh, people oftentimes want to draw fine distinctions between, well, Lucifer is isn't really quite the devil, isn't quite the, the same as the serpent. Uh, but to me, they're all the same thing. It's all the same idea of antinomianism and bucking the system disconnection from god that's what it's about i'll continue on alistair crowley paraphrased d's description of Coronzone as the first and deadliest of all the powers of evil 
rightly so, for although he is not a person, he is the metaphysical contrary of the whole process of magic. In the system of Thelema, Kronzon is the dweller in the abyss, the great spiritual wilderness which must be crossed by the adept to attain mastery. Kronzon is there as the final obstruction. If he is met with the proper preparation, then he is there to destroy the ego, which allows the adept to move beyond the abyss. If unprepared, then the unfortunate traveler will be utterly dispersed into annihilation. Now, go back to the Stephen King book. I'm going to reread one sentence from that book. Talking about it. A thing of unshaped, destroying light, and there he would either be mercifully annihilated or live forever. So to me, it is some form of Corona Zone. Some form of a Luciferian energy, some form of the serpent from the Garden of Eden come to Earth to kill you. <laughs> now, in the movie, you can see this. You can see it come to Earth from the skies as a meteor in the form of the deadlights. Because in the movie, they, they, uh, they're smoking at Joe Rogan DMT or whatever they do, and they're hallucinating. They go back a million years to the beginning of time. And you can see it shining brightly, flying down from the skies. Of course, a reference to Lucifer, the fallen angel who fell like lightning from the heavens. The angel of light, the adversary. Clearly the same thing here. And in the movie, they during this ritual of Chud, they chant, bring darkness to light. Referencing it as the angel of light, Lucifer. In the book, in uh, 1985, when they're adults, you can see that it, in its final form of the spider, is offering up many rewards to the adults, much like we saw from the 27 Club, the Faustian Pact. Quote, I'm going to read from the book here, quote, I can't give you eternal life, but I can touch you, and you will live long, long lives. 200 years, 300, perhaps 500. I can make you gods of the earth. If you let me go, if you let me go, if you let me. <laughs> so, he says, I can make you gods. Who else said that? That old slimy snake in the garden offered that to Adam and Eve as well. You will become like gods. Let's talk about that smoke hole. <clears throat> <laughs> when they have the smoke hole ceremony in the book, they get the visions, which which I, I just talked about. Um, let me back up a bit here. When I talked about how they smoked that Joe Rogan DMT, they saw it tri uh, falling to earth like lightning. And that is during the smoke hole ceremony in the book. It's, you know, you can, again, you can't make the movie 10 hours long. So, but in the book, it's the whole thing where the kids get in a, you know, when they're children, they get into a tent and they're, they're token up and they start tripping and they see it. I'm going to read to you the passage from the book. And again, we're going to reiterate the same point over and over. It is a Luciferian fallen angel. If you're like me, you're a sucker for mysteries, true crime. And once you put me back into a period piece with those old flapper 1920s era time frame you got me i'm all yours so let me tell you about this game called june's journey we're going to escape to a bygone age of mystery danger and romance 
as you immerse yourself into the world of June's Journey, a hidden object mystery mobile game that puts your detective skills to the test. Play as June Parker and investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s while uncovering the mystery of her sister's murder with hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles. The next clue is always within reach. Now, one thing I like is that it sharpens your vision to look for objects. In case I I ever make it on uh, one of these reality contest shows, I got to harness my puzzle my puzzle skills and my visual acuity and and i I learned what a pavilion (laughs) when i was playing the game i learned what a pavilion was it's it's basically a gazebo i didn't know that so i'm learning all right in each level you search for hidden objects in new york parlors or or uh, paris sidewalks trying to figure out this scandalous family secret of how june's sister died it's got some mystery it's got some danger it's got some romance I got the game on my phone right now, and I'm on chapter three, and I'm looking for clues on this crime scene photo because we're gonna we're gonna figure out who did this, and you're gonna love it. They play real like mad chill music, so it's kind of relaxing too. You get to customize your little luxurious estate with gardens and buildings and such. So look, if you're into detective work, solving clues, finding clues, scandalous family secrets. Uh, you just want a fun little escape from the dreaded day job or whatever. This is your game. I enjoy playing it at the end of the day when I'm chilling in bed trying to unwind because it's just a nice little escape kind of game for me. And not only that, poor June, she needs my help to figure out how her sister died. And guess what? June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The clouds in the west lit with a bloom of red fire. It traced its way toward them, widening from an artery to a stream to a river of ominous color. And then, as a burning, falling object broke through the cloud cover, the wind came. It was hot and searing, smoky and suffocating. The thing in the sky was gigantic, a flaming matchhead that was nearly too bright to look at. Arcs of electricity bolted from it, blue bullwhips that flashed out from it and left thunder in their wake. A spaceship, Richie screamed, falling to his knees and covering his eyes. Oh my god, it's a spaceship. But he believed, and would tell the others later, as best he could, that it was not a spaceship, although it might have come through space to get here. Whatever came down on that long-ago day had come from a place much further away than another star or another galaxy. And if spaceship was the first word to come into his mind, perhaps that was the only because his mind had no other way of grasping what his eyes were seeing. Wasn't that curious? They're filling our minds through entertainment with the idea that things from the sky are aliens. Alien spaceships come here to bestow their knowledge to enlighten us. <laughs> but it's really the devil. My God. What are you doing, Neil deGrasse Tyson? What are you trying to do to us? Let me continue on. It came out of the sky, Mike said. I never want to see anything like that again in my whole life. It was burning so hot you couldn't really look at it, and it was throwing off electricity and making thunder. The noise. He shook his head and looked at Richie. It sounded like the end of the world. And when it hit, it started a forest fire. That was the end of it. Oh, no. Lowercase i. Sorry. That, that was the end of it. It came out of the sky, Mike repeated, but it wasn't a spaceship exactly. It wasn't a meteor either. It was more like, well, like the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible that was supposed to have the spirit of God inside of it. Except this wasn't God. Just feeling it, watching it come. You knew it wasn't, you knew it meant bad. 
that it was bad. So, clearly, lots of religious tones here. Clearly, a angel, a demon, coming from the skies, just like Lucifer did, promising that they will be like gods. And the uh, and another one more. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna. I'm gonna beat this dead horse here. The final form of the book of the spider. It has a giant egg sac, and they call it a being of light. Again, very clear. I'm gonna read that part for you too. And for an instant, did see the shape behind the shape. Saw lights. Saw an endless crawling hairy thing, which was made of light, and nothing else. Orange light, dead light that mocked life. Very scary stuff here. Now, the ritual of Chud. Let's talk about that a little bit more. In the movie, they each of the children, as adults, they go back to get their tokens. This is the uh, something from their childhood memories. It helps them remember. And they offer it up as a sacrifice to try and contain it inside of this vessel that Mike has. And, if, and uh, it fails, of course, as it had for the Native Americans uh, who had previously tried it. And they say in the movie that's because they didn't believe in it enough. Okay? They didn't believe in it. In the book, now, the ritual of Chud is actually about humans locking tongues with these entities and telling jokes back and forth in what they call the battle of wills. And you find out that locking tongues is not physical, but mental and spiritual. Okay? So, in the movie, you can hear them say it's a battle of wills. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like ritual magic to me. Sounds like the ritual magic to me. And to emphasize that, we're going to come to my last point, the very controversial point. This was what was missing from the film. I don't hear anyone talking about it. I don't know why, but they're not talking about it. There's a part just before the <laughs> where they cut their palms with the glass to make that pact. There was, when they were children, after they defeated it the first time, there was a gangbang. <laughs> That's right. An underage gangbang. Now, let's link this in. What does this symbolize? It could symbolize sex magic, maybe. Because this movie, this tale, is about the will, the mental emanations, which in the terms of the sexy magic... They believe that the the orgasm comes from, uh, you know, this head, the head chakra, the crown chakra. It contains energy and all this stuff. And then it, you can manifest your will through catching that nut. It sounds crazy, but that's the way it is. So it could be. And then, and I reread the book. I don't know. That, I mean, that's a pretty loose connection. But I thought it was very curious to me. I'm going to read to you from the book. I'm going to read you from the book, and you can tell me what you think. Oh, boy. Where are we at here? Okay. I don't think it was exactly like, you know, like the big boys say, but it was it was really something. He speaks low so the others can't hear. I love you, Bevy. Uh, and, and let me back up here. I, I believe this was taken from... And sorry, I don't have the book in front of me anymore. I wrote this down. I think this is... So, like... So they get okay. So they get back from killing it, and and Beverly has this idea of like, how are we gonna, you know, basically seal each other to one another after this this 
experience we've had. And she says, let's, she basically is like guides all the young boys into having sex with her. And like I said, they're like 12 or 13. So like, eh, right. I see why, I see why they don't want to put this on the movie screen, but it's actually a very important element in the book. So she's, so as each one of the boys is having the sex with her, they, they kind of, not all of them, but most of them kind of whisper something about how they love her, which is very touching, right? Very not. I mean, I mean, this is why I didn't, <laughs> so it's very controversial. I mean, these are kids, but you were a kid. Come on, don't judge. So these, uh, so these kids, these boys are like, Hey, I love you, Beverly, while they're each doing their thing. Let me get back to the reading here. Her consciousness breaks down a little there. She's quite sure there's more talk. Some whispered, some loud. I can't remember what it said. It doesn't matter. Does she have to talk each of them into it all over again? She's referring to the sex. She has to kind of coach them into it, right? Yes, probably, but it doesn't matter. They have to be talked into it. This essential human link between the world and the infinite. The only place where the bloodstream touches eternity. It doesn't matter. What matters is love and desire. Here in this dark is as good a place of any, better than some maybe. I mean, what is going on there? She's Beverly's internalizing this concept of sex during the gangbang, and the other girls refer to the idea of sex as it, uh, because they, in the book they kind of go through her mental sort of memories of other girls who, when they talk about, hey, are you going to do it? So it's kind of like making this weird juxtaposition between this demon it and the sex thing, right? So what is this? It's analogous to the magical connections of sex and it, the demonic force, with the battle of wills. Stephen King seems to be kind of like dancing around the perimeter of this idea. And I argue that he knows what he's talking about here. In the book, the the gangbang isn't really like a crude thing. It's quite emotional. I mean, you've got these damaged kids who've been through all kinds of trauma. Then they got to go kill a, <laughs> a killer clown in the sewers. But they're able to find acceptance and love with one another. It's this symbolic ritual meant to mend their traumatic childhoods to one another through the gangbang. It's actually quite touching in the book. Uh, it's too bad they couldn't find a way to somehow emulate that on screen. Not And just to clarify, not that I want to see kids doing that stuff. I'm just saying. Somehow I wish they could have captured this, this idea. And I don't know that you can, to be honest. It might only work in the book. But that was uh, the one thing I found missing. And, you know, could it be a connection there between the mental emanations of the practitioner of magic, the sex magic, the energy released during that, and then you combine in the idea that it needs to be defeated through a battle of wills, which is what happens in the end. They mentally beat it down to remove it from this world. So there you have it. That's the uh, entire you want you know as far as occult symbolism goes. There's a lot more behind this movie. But uh, we don't want to get into all that. We wanted to talk about the symbolism. We want to talk about the occult messaging, the ritual magic, the Luciferian contact of it from the skies. So thank you for listening. 
drop that review. Leave me a review on the iTunes. I'd really appreciate that. We need to get to a thousand at least. At least. So get on there. It takes a second. Mash that button. Subscribe to the show. And as always, stay woke.